HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Comté-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. This week, Team HRN is at Charleston Wine and Food for the fifth year in a row. So, on this week's Meet and 3, we bring you some of our favorite sound bites from last year. The hospitality here yes. and the camaraderie is really wonderful. Yes. That's what's struck Everybody me. smiles. So, imagine if you mix dirt with sand. Yes. You've got our earth. Yes. That sounds like that would be really poor. Really poor, right? <laughs> You know, we can talk all we want about a good story, but a good story is useless if the wine isn't great. It's highly Instagrammable. It looks so gory. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome everyone to Cutting the Curd. Today I have Jessica Little from Sweetgrass Dairy. I'm Kara Warren and we're going to talk about cheese from Georgia. Jessica, how are you doing today? I am great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Awesome. So I love that you have, were on the show 10 years ago to, to be pretty much exact. How does, that's kind of amazing in my opinion. How do you feel about that? <laughs> You know, it's so crazy to to stop and think about it. On one hand, I feel like time has flown so much and just so fast. And then on the other hand, I'm like, man, we really are this crazy that we're still still at it 10 years later. Um, I think I had just had my fourth child, so I was very sleep-deprived and hopefully didn't sound too ridiculous on the last interview no it was amazing i mean this at this point in time Anne saxelby was the host um you know you were i believe just selling cheese in georgia or in the south and mm-hmm. from what i could tell you were this surprised me you had cow and goat's milk cheese we did we did we made both for uh at least 10 years and then um so, you know, Sweetgrass Dairy was started by my parents, and Jeremy and I moved to the creamery about a year into the life of the creamery. So I grew up on the dairy farm and was very, 
you know, well-versed in, I guess, animal agriculture, enough to know that I didn't really want to be a dairy farmer, but ah, I feel, I feel the same. I feel the same. Everyone asked me, oh, you sell cheese. Could you make cheese? I said, no, (laughs) no, I couldn't be a dairy farmer. At least I, you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's a different type of lifestyle. So uh, anyway, you were saying. So much work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, so much work. And um, so we moved to the creamery about a year into the the life of the cheese. And um, by 2004, my parents, you know, definitely believe in giving opportunities but not handouts. So the business was not yet operating in the black. And they said, if you want to buy it, here's an opportunity. Um, Because as you can imagine, we just had some student debt. We had no uh, cash savings or anything. We were just, it was a good time to buy the business, you know? And so we did. And that must've been so scary though. I I mean, to the idea of of buying a business at any point in your life is like, Oh my God, here it is. (laughs) Well, you know, yes and no. I think when you have very little to risk, you know, it, it wasn't so bad. And maybe it was, you know, I have very entrepreneurial parents. I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know what, you know, avenue I was going to take. And so I was definitely much more comfortable with the idea of owning a business. And the funny part, you know, I think I chose a partner very well in that um, Jeremy is actually very, very risk averse. We're very, very different people. And if it were up to me, I probably would have run the business off the cliff many, many years ago. And if it were up to him, we would never he would never have had the business in the first place. So just together, we make a good team and keep each other in check. And um, so it took a lot of, I think, convincing on his part. But I was ready to jump in the deep end. But I just, I believed so much in, in what my parents were doing. I believed in how they were farming and how different that was. I was able to see, you know, both conventional and New Zealand rotational grazing and um, and I worked in restaurants all through college, and I knew that chefs were looking for great food, and that there was you know this great opportunity um, and this great platform to be able to help you know cultivate this inspired American food culture and, and tell the story of our region. And, and cheese just happened to be it, so we kind of jumped at that opportunity. But you know, thinking back on it, I think we were also very sleep deprived, you oh, know, with children and goats and cheese making and all that. So we probably weren't the most rational in making those decisions. Oh my goodness. This is four children at this point, you're saying? Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's... Well, four, yeah, by 2010. Okay, so by 2010, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned, uh, I just want to confirm and, and reiterate to the listeners, your mom was in animal science and your dad was interested in rotational grazing. Is that what you said? So, uh, yes, yeah, so my parents, both of, well, my dad is from a long line of dairy farmers. Um, he grew up in western New York, but ended up going to college at the University of Georgia, and, where he met my mom. So they both have degrees in animal science, um, and at, for a little bit of time, both of them thought they wanted to go on to vet school, but they did not. They oh, did, thank God they didn't, yeah. <laughs> they did not. Yeah. And, um, yep. So they farmed uh, in a conventional manner, the way that, you know, universities were teaching back in the 70s and early 80s. And um, they were very successful at that, but it was not a great lifestyle for them or for Mm -hmm. the earth or for the cows. And so in 1993, they switched over to that New Zealand rotational grazing style. And um, the milk was just so different. It was so delicious that by the time I went to college and my two brothers went off, my mom's wheels were kind of turning on how in the world could she tell the story of this 
sustainable agriculture and regenerative agriculture and humane animal husbandry, and she was the vehicle to do that. I mean, it was her her brainchild. I love that. I feel like women have the best ideas. No offense to the other gender, but <laughs> I just feel like there's a superiority there a little bit. Um, and oh, she is such a visionary. There's no doubt about it. Oh yeah, she, See? she is definitely the one driving the bus. I would I would love to have coffee or tea with your mom. She sounds amazing. If she, you know, you know, everything is okay. Uh, that she sounds amazing. Um, and, she really is. Um, and what I was gonna say to you was uh, just for definition, because I'm I'm trying to teach everyone. You know, in the cheese world, I feel like we kind of brush past these terms really fast. Um, rotational grazing. Um, how how do you? I I I could try to describe it, but I I think it's probably better coming from you. Uh, if you don't mind, sure. just doing a short, brief description of what that is. So, um, I, I usually try to preface this when people ask is that most dairy farmers um, measure their success by longevity of their cows. So. You know, the way that you farm in Vermont is going to be very different than the way that you farm in California than the way that you farm in in South Georgia. It just so happens for us, what makes us so unique is that we are able to pasture our cows 12 months out of the year because you need a minimum of 50 degrees to grow grass, and our average annual temperature is 67 degrees, and you need unlimited water. And we sit on top of the second largest aquifer of the nation, so we have a lot of water to be able to grow our grass. So if you go out west, it's too dry. You go up north, it's too cold. Um, and you have to have a place to put your cows in barns. So That's so really, cool, by the way. I just have to yeah. say, I didn't know that about you guys. And I was like, whoa, okay. Yes, New fact for is. me. It's, it's Excellent. definitely makes us very unique. And again, this was, um, you know, my parents were growing all of these crops when they had the conventional system because in the conventional model you just want to make more 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 milk so it's a very expensive model you have to put in these barns and fans and cooling systems and misters and you know grow all these crops and have all these big equipment uh, machinery that you know chops and you know mixes all the grain and take it to the cows and um, they just thought gosh there's got to be a better way they're working themselves to death and so Mm. Uh, my mom saw a conference of a guy from New Zealand that was teaching about rotational grazing, and she was like, again, visionary, mm-hmm. knew that the uh, best way to convince my dad that this was a good idea was for him to think it was his idea. So she signed him up. Oh, uh, slick woman. Conference. I like and it. <laughs> he, you know, I know, right? Yeah. And he came back and said, oh, my gosh, this is a great idea. Why in the world are we growing all these crops and bringing them to the cows? Why don't we just let the cows out and let them harvest all their own grass. And this is the way that it's done in New Zealand, where they have really, really uh, friendly climates to cows and the ability to grow a lot of grass. Uh, They don't even feed any grain at all. And so basically the farm is set up, um, it's roughly 350 acres, and it's divided up into five-acre paddocks. So every 12 hours, they are rotated to a new pasture. So the purpose is to get the grass at the exact area where it's going to have the highest sugars, the highest you know, nutrition for the cows, so it can't be too low to the ground where the cows might be grazing too close um, that might have parasite problems or so that it's not too big because if it gets too fibrous, then you're losing a lot of that sugar in there. So really kind of grazing in that perfect time and uh, letting the cows do all the hard work for it, which is how cows were designed that's, these ruminants yeah um, so that, that's amazing effect. yeah like so is it like a timer or you have a person like kind of like hey guys next patch or like how do you how do you know when it's too short like what's the game you know, 
It's a great, that's a great question. And actually you can see a lot of Kiwi dairy farmers, they walk around with a walking stick. Mm. And when my dad was first doing this, so they switched over in 1993, it was not uh, a site that was not uncommon to see my dad out there with a stick, a walking stick on one hand and a refractometer on the other measuring the bricks levels in the grass. And so it really is another word for rotational grazing is intensive grazing management because it is really intense. You're out there every single day mapping out, um, you know, for the next 48 hours or so of which pastures they're going to go to. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, dairy farmers, I always tease my daddy's like Goldilocks. It's either a little bit too wet or it's a little bit too dry. It very rarely is just right um, oh, for him. But, yeah, uh, I was, was going to say, it sounds like that. I mean, you really have to have a certain mindset and love for it to be like, okay, guys, I think it's just about, okay, switch, <laughs> you know? So true. Well, my dad wasn't able to take vacation until he, you know, my brothers came back. My uh, middle brother went to New Zealand and worked uh, after college on dairy farms and, you know, brought, my parents have a big saying that you could come back to the business, but you can't come empty handed. You have to bring something back, bring some sort of knowledge. And, um, and so Clay went and studied in New Zealand and worked for some different dairy farmers and then came back and and uh, was able to give my dad a break. And in fact, they were, you know, in the mountains of Asheville, North Carolina last week. So I was so excited for them to have a little bit of a a break and Clay can hold down the fort. Oh, wow. That's some well-rounded wisdom right there. You know, you can't just like show up. You got to have something to give, you know? Yes, for Um, sure. Oh, my goodness. So uh, a clarification question. Is it, uh, in my research, is sweetgrass dairy considered a farmstead cheesemaker then? Is this, uh... You know, it's so funny that you asked that question because I'm getting that question more and more frequently um, than I did 10 years ago. And yeah. we do not actually make cheese on the property where the cows are located. Um, we're roughly 25 miles um, away, but we are making cheese just from the milk from my parents' herd, which is a closed herd, um, and we want to have control, you know, over the cows from the time that they're babies all the way through milking. So, you know, on one hand, you know, we're not, the the creamery is not located right there on the farm, but for all other intensive purposes, you know, the way that we farm, our mentality, the control that we have over the cows, the fact that it's a closed herd, we, we follow all of those farmstead principles as well. Yeah, I guess then, I mean, in my opinion, <laughs> you're a farmstead cheesemaker, but I know people get into the nitty gritty sometimes, so... That's an interesting, uh, it's very interesting. Um, and I guess I, so in your last interview with Ann Saxelby, there was a lot of discussion about uh, the Department of Agriculture in Georgia. And I'm, I'm curious, has it evolved since 10 years ago? Are they uh, easier to deal with? Are they um, more appreciative of you? Uh, anything? <laughs> well, I will tell you that the, Georgia Department of Economic Development is very, very thankful for Oh, I bet. <laughs> our, our, our region. Yeah. Um, so they have been super friendly. I will say that the Georgia Department of Agriculture is definitely better than 10 years ago. Um, there's still some very difficult things to work through. Uh, but 10 years ago, we weren't allowed to age our cheese on wooden shelves, you know, because, you know, quote, unquote, they harbored bacteria. Which right. Which is exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's the worst thing. Of course it is. Yeah. Cheese. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but now they've passed the legislation where um, we're able to age on wood. 
Um, you know, I think that 10 years ago they were still testing just for coliform, you know, as a blanket, just bacteria count, which, as you know, when you make cheese, you actually add bacteria and oh, cultures. Yeah. Um, so it's not really a good measure of whether or not cheese is good or not. Um, but the um, now we're testing for pathogenic bacteria, which is exactly what we need to be doing. So, yes, I, I would say that they're definitely better. Um, and we always try to keep in mind that we really do have the consumer's best interest at heart. So even if it's something that we don't understand, we've tried really hard to partner with them a little bit better so that they will have, you know, we're, we're both trying to protect the consumers and learn together because we're not microbiologists. We, you know, we, we yeah. will always be learning. You're only yeah. cheesemakers, you know, what, you know, what can you do? <laughs> um, well, I guess then in terms of the, the economic development that you've done, which I, I know has been huge from reading uh, about you guys, um, has, I guess, consumers have their perception of European style cheeses has that been broadened? Are they more receptive now since 10 years ago? Is that also evolved a little bit, do you think? Yes. Well, at least in our little area, I would say so. You know, our whole county only has 50,000 people, and our town has 20,000 people. And it's really uh, funny to see. In 2010, we actually sold the goats, and we opened a cheese shop uh, downtown, right in this historic district of, of Thomasville. And it has grown into kind of its own little monster and become um, a full-fledged restaurant. So we have this really great craft cocktail program. We have a wood-fired grill. We have, you know, cheese boards, and we feature not only our cheeses but other like-minded producers. That I love telling the stories of other cheeses. And um, so I think that, you know, it really has helped put us on the map locally here. But it really has helped open people's minds to cheeses. And we actually, in our town of 20,000 people, there are two cheese shops. Really? <laughs> restaurants here. Oh, my goodness. And, um, thinking that it really is helping us tell the story of other like-minded producers. It's a lot easier than 2005 where we're just trying to beg people to even taste goat cheese for You're, the first time. I'm sure. I mean, uh, trying to sell a camembert-style sweetgrass uh, cheese, like uh, you have the Green Hill, um, you know, it probably was a little bit like, oh, this is not a cheddar, you know, like those sort of, yes. you know, it's not an aged sharp cheese. Oh, yeah, this yes. is something different. For yeah. sure. I mean, I think that the first um, 10 years that we were making cheese, we got asked for hoop cheese a lot, for cheddar and for pepper jack. That was kind of the, you know, what people were asking. We didn't make any of those. You're like, I'm not caving <laughs> so in. I'm not going to do it. A little it. bit of a, <laughs> an uphill battle. But you do a pimento cheese. Which I was very excited to get in the mail a sample from you. I'm like so excited to try this pimento cheese. Like I have it in the studio. I'm like gonna maybe in the second half I'll I'll be able to wrestle it out of my bag. I'm so so well, that I you hope do. So you know it's funny because we we didn't start making pimento cheese until we opened the restaurant and we wanted to have um, something that was easy that we can make with our own cheeses. So we use our Thomasville tome. So it's the only raw milk pimento cheese that we know of on the market. And it became this kind of little cult classic just locally here. And then people were traveling and then asking, you know, they go back home and then they would ask us to ship them the pimento cheese. And Jeremy is so funny. He's not from the South, so he did not grow up eating pimento cheese. So he said, well, if we're going to make it, we're going to make the best possible pimento ever. So we used piquillo peppers and pimentone from Spain and some Dijon mustard and and really just trying to make 
really high quality feminine cheese. So it's been a good addition to our our line and, and kind of helping people remember that we are in the South. We're from Georgia. Heck yeah. All right, cool. Jessica, on that note, we're going to take a quick break as I like maybe get some cheese out of my bag. Um, So just hang on tight for two seconds and everyone will be right back. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to Heritage Radio Network with Cutting the Curd. I'm talking to Jessica Little of Sweetgrass Dairy. I'm Kara Warren, your host. And we are talking about cheese from the South and a decade of difference. Boy, it has changed. I swear. I mean, everything we were just talking about in the first half of the show I mean, uh, Jessica, one thing that I loved from Ann Saxelby's um, last interview with you is you had a moment where you said, um, I, I hope one day we can ship pallets of our cheese to New York. Um, have, you, have you accomplished this goal? <laughs> we have. Now I'm trying to figure out how do we fill up at least half truckloads or truckloads. Oh, my to gosh. <laughs> But how does that feel as a cheesemaker? That I can't even, I mean, to go, now you're talking about, yeah, half truckloads? That's that's amazing. Well, I don't know. I think um, we're always, logistics has been a really big challenge for us. I mean, we're, there's strengths and weaknesses in, in being in a state where there's only six cheesemakers. You know, on one hand, it's great because there's not a lot of competition, but then it's also hard because it's lonely. It kind of feels like an island where it's, if you look at the Vermont cheesemakers, they've done such a good job at consolidating mm-hmm. and being able to get their cheeses down to Boston or to, to New York and so that it's not too uh, expensive for right. the but it's a much, or in consumer. It's a so, much more dense area, um, I feel like, compared to the South. I, I, would, I would bet yeah. it's a little more spread out in the South compared to yeah, I mean, the Northeast. It is. We, we sure are. We just don't have a long history of cheesemaking. And there's not a lot of cheesemakers that are selling outside of kind of their immediate region um, or area. So, um, 
yeah, I, I, it is exciting to be able to to put cheese on pallets, and I think it's better for the quality. If, you, if you're going to be sending them very far away, it's great to have it in refrigerated trucks. As you know, UPS is not always kind to perishable Ooh. products. Ooh, I remember there are sometimes I I was like head of receiving at Murray's and a million years ago. I remember we used to get some Farms Direct, and it was like styrofoam and random newspaper and a lot of uh, not you guys I'm sure but like oddball things you get tucked into the package just to make sure that cheese is safe you know um oh my gosh I think about some of the mistakes that we've made over the years in packaging and I'm horrified of some of the things that we've done but yeah trial and error it's a you know just gaining wisdom some of those are painful life lessons right I think oh yeah absolutely I mean I think your packaging by the way um because you guys were kind enough to really send me samples, which I'm I'm thrilled about. I have to say it was beautiful when it came in. It was like a little gift package that came to me. Um, it, great marketing, great branding. I know immediately it's from Georgia. Um, I love the green and white logo. Is that something you handle yourself or is that like a team effort that you guys do? Oh, we, um, I'm a big believer in teams. We've got such a great team of um, people not only on, you know, packaging, but, you know, Mallory is our marketing coordinator, and Liza in sales, and just really um, helping Sweetgrass Dairy succeed because, you know, Liza is our national sales manager. She lives in California, and so she's able to see how other people are packaging and receive our cheeses in the mail and make sure, and, you know, giving feedback to our team, like, this is great, This we need more ice, we need, you know whatever that may be. So, yeah, no. um, and Mallory is all about the experience of making sure that when you're unboxing that you know where it comes from and telling that story. So yeah, it's yeah, perfect. I, I took notes in my brain. I was like, this is the way to do it. This is classy. They're classy people. at Secret dairy. <laughs> I got to do better. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so another, another cool thing I wanted to bring up was uh, the Georgia. Well, is there a Georgia cheese guild? That was another thing 10 years ago. It, there was none. Maybe there's a club now or some sort of thing that has evolved. Well, we actually have the Southern Cheese Guild. So ah, okay. we do not have one just for Georgia, but there is one for the South, which um, was in existence um, and then kind of disbanded for a few years. And now Luella has picked up the torch and is helping us get it back going again for you know, telling stories of cheesemakers of the South and an educational resource because, again, we're all so spread out. But there's some really exciting things happening in the South from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama. I mean, there's just some really great um, stories to tell and great cheeses to share. So I'm excited. We're I'm on the board and, and trying to help revitalize this whole guild and, and help other people that – would like to have resources and and want to make cheese in the south i think that's super cool i mean even for um agritourism like maybe there's a way you know people can come visit the farm see the cheese making um once you have a good group like that and and then you have a yeah brewers i mean it just starts this like whole other tier that of the community that um i think it just makes everyone's life better right i mean Sure. Yeah, I think you guys. Well, there's are, a lot of value in fellowship, you know, of coming together, and and we have a lot of the same struggles, and you know, that we don't have to try to solve them all by ourselves. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, and kind of leaning on each other to to all become better. I I think that's wonderful. I mean, that's just that's what we all need nowadays. You know, that's kind of like that next step. Um, so 
that's good. Props to you. So let's get the numbers straight on this. Your 20 years Sweetgrass Dairy has been around, and now 10 years the shop has been around. You have four mm-hmm. children. I mean, how do you do this all? I don't, I don't even know. And then I, I've also been told one of your sons, his birthday is coming up. Is this true? Yes. Well, he just passed. Our, our youngest ah, just turned 10. Okay. So. Well, give him a shout-out on the radio because I, I, I was trying to get a shout-out for him. <laughs> You're so sweet. Well, his name is Rowan, and so we have, um, like I said, four boys. The oldest one, we had a cheese um, named Gray's Goat, which was a goat milk version of Green Hill uh, that we no longer make, so we need to make another cheese for him. But Asher is our second son. We have Asher Blue. Our third son's name is Finn. His full name is Griffin, so we have a, a cheese named Griffin. And our the youngest, Rowan, whose birthday just passed, does not yet have a cheese. So ah. um, I'm just going to put it out here. The next time that we talk, maybe 10 years from now, we'll yeah. have another cheese named after Rowan um, to add to the collection. So happy, happy birthday, Rowan. Woohoo! I love it. I have to say, beautiful names. You know, like, and it's great that you've, you've mixed that into your cheese world as well, because I was thinking, like, how do they come up with these cheese names? So you beat me to the punch on that one. Um, is there, so is there a new style of cheese that you're working on right now, actually? Or, or is it just the core that you have right now? Well, that's a great question. So we are, uh, we decided uh, by the end of 2014, we knew that if we were going to continue to grow um, Sweetgrass Dairy, because we also, as you can, as you probably remember too, in 2013, 2014, we knew that all the FISMA, all these food safety acts uh, were coming down the pipeline, all these regulations. And we built the cheese plant, my parents built the current cheese plant um, in 2000 when there were no other cheesemakers in Georgia, so there were no regulations. So uh, we knew that we would be out of compliance. And their goal in building the, the cheese plant was that if it was around for 10 years, it would be a good test kitchen. Well, Jeremy and I, when we bought it, what we did is we just started adding on. So it's kind of this Frankenstein building that's not very efficient, doesn't have great uh, flow to it. So we don't practice any sort of lean manufacturing at all. And um, was not, we knew eventually it would not be in code or compliance. So we started talking about building a new production facility. And then three years ago, we started working with an architect and a year ago, we finally got financing, and uh, our, we should be in our new plant this summer, which is so exciting and such a long journey. And I think it's exciting not only to be able to make uh, higher quality cheeses, but you know more volume to really help us grow, but also for Jeremy to have some R&D and be able to add more cheeses to our product line. Um, as you can imagine, it takes several years um, to develop a new cheese, and the one that he's been playing with uh, for the last year or so has been a reblochon style just because one thing that we know we probably will not do um, in Georgia is make cheeses that have to age for very long periods of time. So we probably will not be making any alpine style cheeses or or cheddars, you know, in big blocks that would need more than a year to age because our biggest challenge is the heat. It just uh, I was costs ask. so much money to run coolers down here. So and, heat and um, so humidity maybe? cheeses that... Oh. Yeah. are really, really yeah. delicious um, in six months or less. So who knows? I, I think the next several years are going to be really exciting um, to be able to add back some of our cheeses because when Jeremy and I first moved back, my mom was making almost 30 different styles of cheese because she was doing cow's milk, goat's That's milk. That's a lot. Milk <laughs> yeah. And we've had to 
to pare them down, and we have a core of six now. But I think um, that it's going to be really exciting to start adding back uh, more variety to this to our product line. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations on getting a new production facility. That's, like, very, very cool. I mean, that'll put you... Um, I mean, I guess before were you a Smedium and now you'll be definitely a national brand. I mean, I, I like to think uh, you're really going to get to all the regions after this. And, and that's really exciting. It, it is really exciting. Um, yes, we, we do have distributors um, coast to coast, but we definitely don't have a lot of impact, say, in Pacific Northwest or Rocky Mountain region. You know, we definitely... Um, I would not consider us quite yet a national brand. We've done a couple of national promotions, but nothing that I would, you know, it's, this is definitely going to allow us to take more advantage of more of these retail placements. We've, you know, to be able to grow Sweetgrass, and I guess maybe just because Jeremy and I had more experience in restaurants, it was a little bit easier to focus on the food service side. Um, but this will allow us to really grow the retail side of our business as well yeah baby steps i i love it though it's uh <laughs> you've done you've done it all oh my goodness i i mean in a decade later it's going to be interesting to hear like i guess my actually this brings together a good question what you do you foresee as the next 10 years from now i mean everything is kind of we went from these small cut to order counters and it is more like grab and go style now um mm -hmm. that's the 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 change I've seen in the retail side, but as a cheesemaker, what do you, will we have raw milk cheese? I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think? It's a really, really good question. It's something that's definitely on the forefront of my mind. I think just from a personal standpoint, the next 10 years as you know, trying to grow Seacrest Dairy, I think that so much of our success is going to be hinged on not trying to be a jack of all trade and master of none. This is kind of where we feel like we are is mm -hmm. not be very effective or efficient, but really hiring uh, people and building teams around us to, to help us get to that next level. Um, because like I said, Jeremy's never going to be a microbiologist and there's no way that I can, you know, be great at sales and marketing and HR and IT and finance and, you know, still try to run the business. You know, I mean, it's just not possible. And yeah, so definitely. I think that just from a personal development standpoint, we're going to have to really refine and, and have more clearly defined job roles. And it will be really exciting to see what the team is like um, in the next 10 years. From a bigger picture, and what I spend a lot of time thinking about is the impact of plant-based uh, foods mm -hmm. and what you know, consumers are going to uh, support how how they're going to support animal agriculture, and I think that you know it is kind of a scary time for dairy farmers and cheesemakers alike. And I there's no secret that for my brother, his success as a dairy farmer is hinged on us and and us growing and and making more cheese. Right now, uh, we only last year we made about 380,000 pounds of cheese, which only translated to about 300 cows and. Hmm. Um, they actually have, my parents and my brother, between um, them, they have three different dairy farms that are all roughly 20 miles from us. So they're milking 1,500 cows. Um, so the vast majority is just going to a co-op where they're not getting paid a premium um, oh, for the, the harder style that they farm. Yeah. And in order for the Clay to stay in business, you know, or have the farm for his children to come back and take over if they want one day, 
we're going to have to make more cheese and they're going to have to get paid a premium for that. Um, I do think that there's always going to be a, a group of people that want to know where their food comes from. And, you know, cheese is a, it predates written history. It's, you know, from Old Testament and from the land of milk and honey. And there's something that's really satisfying and soulful about uh, about cheese. It's in the same family of foods like coffee and chocolate that evoke emotion. So I hope that there's always going to be the subsect of people that will always support great cheesemakers and be a demand for that. And I think that we'll, as an industry, need to start talking about more and more of uh, regenerative agriculture and the benefits that animals can have, like sequestering the carbon back in the soil and, you know, that there are some really great things that happen uh, when you farm in a really healthy and organic and, and sustainable way. Oh, man. Thank you, Jessica. I think that's um, all really, I've also been reading things here and there about those sort of topics, and I'm glad to hear you talk about that. So thank you. Um, I just want to say thank you for having me on the, thank you for being on the show. Pardon me, it's the middle of the day. Thank you for coming on the show. This has been wonderful. I was really looking forward to interviewing you. Um, And I'm excited to just pass the word along about Sweetgrass Dairy. Thank you. Well, you are so sweet, and thank you so much for, for calling. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, and, and I'm so thankful that you got our cheeses, and I hope you enjoy every bite. I will, I will. All right, listeners, thank you very much. This is uh, Heritage Radio Network. You can follow me at Kara Warren. You can follow Sweetgrass Dairy at Sweetgrass Dairy. Uh, this was my episode with Jessica Little, owner of Sweetgrass Dairy, and eat more cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.